Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, November 17th, 2022. Joining me for today's podcast are Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, AARP, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other wonderful publications. John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. And we've got uh, Rob Pegarero, who has proven that being in journalism allows you to travel to very exotic uh, uh, and wonderful places. <laughs> He's in Hawaii. Aloha. He, write, <laughs> he writes Aloha. frequently for technology on, on Wirecutter PC Magazine and USA Today. Guys, how are you doing today? Good. Good. Could be better if I could get the damn camera working. Working. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to talk to the IT department, I promise, and I'm going to fire the CIO. I mean, sure. he has shown the world how you fire people, so I'm going to, I'm going to fire my CIO after this call. But anyway, let's just jump into the topics right away because we've got quite a bit to catch up on. We're not going to have a podcast next week because it's Thanksgiving, but let's definitely kind of tee the first topic off here, and that is... I bring it up on the screen. Uh, TikTok, um, I think you're asking a real bold question, John. Is it really <laughs> <laughs> is it really that dangerous? What do you mean by that? Because there's a lot of, you know, there is a lot of concern about TikTok, and there has been a lot of concern about it for quite some time. But why have you raised that question? Oh, because the FBI director was just testifying recently in, in front of Congress, so, you know, one of these committees about um, how serious he actually thinks the potential threat is from this company in terms of gathering information and, um, you know, actually taking control of people's smartphones, um, basically harvesting a lot of information on U.S. citizens. Remember, this is a Chinese ownership issue. And in China, the rules are such that um, if you're a, a company in China, you have to relinquish any data that they may want at any given time. Um, so that's always an issue. And that, that's the concern that um, TikTok, TikTok could be leveraged by Chinese hackers, uh, Chinese government hackers, hackers in, the, in this world of uh, eco espionage kinds of cyber attacks that go on all the time every day. And that TikTok makes American citizens vulnerable. Um, so it's not just about all happy-go-lucky dancing videos <laughs> and cats riding on Roombas and things like that. That there's a serious threat there. That's the idea. But in your, as you look at the at the data, and because you've been covering topics and derivatives of topics like this for some time, are you concerned? Or you think right now is just kind of a America's way of getting back at China? to put it simplistically? Well, you know, I think it, it's a combination of factors. I mean, it's all all of what I just said before is certainly true. That threat does exist. Um, and it exists from any company. Google and Amazon track you all the time. Google records you all the time, almost. Um, and, you know, and tracks you all the time, almost. So uh, these violations of privacy and actually threats to your personal security are very real. Um, and it's certainly true that um, if they wanted to, there, there are a lot of hacks on. The Chinese hackers have gone into the government servers as well. So all that's true. The question is, what do you do about it in this global marketplace? I think this is just going to come up all the time. And, you know, some other countries might own a different piece of software that's very popular. 
And what do you do about that? And what kind of safeguards can you put in? Rob, what's your view from your comfortable balcony in Hawaii? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so much closer to China than the rest of y'all. Uh, I think TikTok as a security and privacy threat is really overblown. First of all, if the Chinese government wants to get location data on America, they can just buy it. Buy it from the same data brokers everyone else has from. Uh, they don't need to use this, this one app. Uh, and TikTok itself, you know, you don't have to. Last time I put it on a test, one, I didn't even ask for location permission. So it is actually relatively light in terms of the data it collects. You can say that here we have this immensely popular social media app that is at least theoretically, you know, it's under the control of the foreign government that doesn't like U.S. social media apps operate. So, so there's issues of ownership and control that I think are separate from, you know, is this app any more of a privacy threat than anything else? You mentioned Google, I think, actually, they know how to keep their own data safe. It is very valuable to them. I worry more about the wireless carriers, which keep anywhere from one to five years of cell site location history. Uh, is their IT as good as Google's? I'm going to say probably not. So where do you fall on this, Stuart? Do, do you, uh, are you concerned well, or are you not concerned? I'm, I'm depressed. <laughs> this, this is sort of like shovel out an avalanche with a single shovel. I mean, they're on said there are so many companies who are using so many sophisticated to collect whatever they can. I was just at a conference a couple of weeks ago uh, for, um, that uh, companies are, are are collecting what they call first party data in order to get, get a better idea of who their customers are and to follow customers through the customer's journey. Data is benign, but at the, the line between and what is dangerous and how easy it is to cross that line line willingly consciously unconsciously it, it's sort of like um you know you lay out a temptation in front of people and their natural advantage of it and i think that's what's happening now we've made all of these in tools available to all of these companies and they simply sell in the name of capitalism, in the name of competition, in order to get a leg to satisfy shareholders, and all of these, all of all of this inertia, essentially, to make, to collect and to make the more information anybody to collect to accelerate it by algorithms, by government, even the European laws. To rein in these people, I'm almost that you just have, have to have a blanket ban on collecting any daily expressed, you know, um, uh, okay from. Each. And I don't even think that's all. Awesome. We're going to be Google later, and up until May 2018, collecting data on its users, even if you had signed out of their app. So. Right. The temptations, I think, are just too great for these companies uh, for the, to avoid. And I'm, I'm just not sure that there, there is a solution except as I yourself make in, locking yourself in the bathroom.
Yeah, I, I, you know, to be very honest with you, I don't know how I fall on this. I mean, I, I, I'm very sensitive to the um, uh, to the ar ar the argument that the, that the government has made, but I also understand you know, that there are certain political parties in this country that benefit from creating this um, uh, this uh, perception that TikTok is going to destroy the world. So I think somewhere between those two points of view is I think where the the answer is. I do think we have our own issues with, uh, and we're going to talk about in a few moments with Google and others that I think represent the more significant threat um, to American um, privacy of citizens and things like that. But let's let's hit the next topic here. And John, I know you love this topic because you are you're close friends with Elon yeah. Musk, um, and I know you've been on vacation with him. Um, but I, I want to say something up front though, because because I'm going to be the lone person on this because i think i know uh, how each of you feel about good old elon musk i there's no question in my view that he's gotten into um with this acquisition of twitter he i think he took something over he never anticipated which is shocking how to run the damn thing you know i think there's now there's he, he's you know saying explicitly he may want to he's probably going to hire a ceo that that hopefully to, uh, that that kind of runs the place in a smooth way it's shocking to me that he laid off half the sales for uh, not the sales force, but ha half the company, and not understanding that he was high, he was laying off certain groups that when he wanted to make certain feature changes, he had to rehire them back. So it's kind of crazy that a CEO like that would ha not have that kind of organizational understanding of the company of like where the bodies are that keeps the th the thing running. But I will say that I'm very sensitive to the argument about the fact that he's you know now that he's that he's the at least right now the ceo of the company he owns the company he has a fiduciary res responsibility to get the company back on the right track from a profitability standpoint so i'm not i'm not i don't really have a lot of sympathy for the fact that hey he laid half the, the, uh, the company off he's got to figure out a way to replace a lot of advertising revenue that's gone out the window uh, recently i think he needs the whole he, he's trying to fix that whole verif verification process which I mean, there's been some fits and starts there. So I'm, you know, and, and by the way, let me just conclude this, this whole argument where, you know, he's, he, I think he issued a, some type of ultimatum uh, this morning, or it was, maybe it was yesterday, where people have to agree with him that they're going to work hard or they're out of there. You know, we, we, we can debate all day long whether that's the, the greatest motivational technique to manage people, and I would argue that it's probably not. But he has every, you know, people have every, um, he has every right to expect people who work at Twitter to work as hard as they can. You know, I, I think any, any CEO ha should have that expectation. So anyway, with that as a kind of proviso, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go to John last because I know he's saving some, some firepower, but <laughs> let, let's start with Stuart. <laughs> well, I mean, this is an example of the Peter principle. I don't know what is. <laughs> Uh, he's he so risen to the level of his incompetence and to, first of all, to old corporate saw that when you come in to take over company, you hire two and you fire two. Everybody else know what your intentions are. Uh, um, and what he did was, was with actual in charge to just the fire the two and not hire anybody is, but it was really funny trevor noah had a very interesting take on this where he talked about that he has sent out this rah rah work hard and we'll do fine pep talk via email it was a football coach and gather everybody in the locker room and and kneel down and put all your arms in his you know football 
football coaches are well known for berating their, their team before egging them on. They don't do that by email. So I thought that was a really interesting take. But if this is just a a an MBA one in the Peter principle, I don't know what it is. Yeah. So Rob, from your again from your comfortable perch in uh, Hawaii. What's your take on Mr. Musk and the tw- and the and the drama at Twitter? It has been really confusing because I've been following and covering SpaceX for a long time, and if you ran that company the way it's run Twitter, I don't even want to think about it. It's it's just perplexing. You know, if, if you decide to fire a lot of people, you don't need to be cruel. But a friend of mine found out he was fired when he couldn't log into his work laptop, um, and you can't assume the average hazards of somebody you can just order around keep spending your money here or else uh and then musk is he he has so much to do and he wastes so much time on twitter responding to some of the worst writers and malcontents and frauds out there you know if that's his sense of what the problems on twitter are it's never gonna get better and it's distressing because i like twitter you know as a journalist uh you know it's my chance to write you know the new york tabloid headlines i could never get away with any of my day jobs Public I get a lot out of the service despite all the stupid people on my bench. And I, you know, the odds of it found a year from now are, are less than they were. I think it will muddle through, but a lot of Musk's money is just going to get lit up on fire. Okay, John, this is a this is a 65 mile an hour pitch down the middle. Uh, <laughs> Aaron Judge is up. What do you well, think, John? Well, it's been it's been interesting. You know, Mastodon, Mastodon, go Mastodon. Um, They, um, you know, picked up almost 300,000 users in the first couple of days after Musk took over Twitter, which is remarkable, right? Um, You know, and social media platforms can come and go, especially in this case where there's no investment. I have no photos up up there that I'm worried about with my family photos or anything like that or college friends that I'll lose track of if I don't stay on the platform. So Twitter doesn't have a hold on people. That's one of the things that he doesn't really understand. It's like, I can switch tomorrow. Not a big deal, you know, pretty easy to do. Uh, yeah, it's been really interesting, that hardcore, the, the, the actual word was he wants people to promise to be hardcore. This is from a guy who was born with a platinum spoon in his mouth. I don't think too many people are going to take too kindly to that kind of advice. Um, so he slept in the, you know, the factory of Tesla one night. I don't think this guy knows what really hard work is. So I don't think a lot of employees are going to like it very much. And some of the comments from the employees already are pretty, pretty humorous. Yeah, I think he doesn't understand it. Yeah. Let me just jump in for one second, though. Is that, and I, I hate to say this, but I agree with a lot of your commentary, you know, but, but I will say, I will say one thing is that I think the Twitter thing in terms of the employees yapping about what's going on here is right. that remember, and, and you guys don't live out here in, in Wonderland out in Silicon Valley. There is a, there, you know, for those people who work at Meta, formerly Facebook, Apple to a lesser degree, Google, I mean, there are there is an entitled perception that a lot of these employees have, and you put these these folks in a company on the East Coast or in Middle America. Oh my God, we don't get free breakfast, we don't get free lunch, I don't get a massage at three o'clock in the afternoon. 
I mean, there is this perception of a, a lot of young people who, and it's not just a Twitter, by the way, it's other firms like it, if you're right. that they really think the world operates like regular companies that don't give stuff for free to employees, you know? And so I kind of discount some of the yapping that goes on with, with the, um, uh, with the employee piece. I mean, the thing that really just kind of jumps at me though, is that it, you know, running a software company, and this is where I, where I want you to close on this, because I think you'll agree running a software company is fundamentally different from running a hardware company. SpaceX is a hardware company. They create rockets. Now there's software that plays obviously a, a, a huge role same thing with Tesla. Uh, you know, Tesla is a hardware company. They manufacture cars and have a very um, uh, uh, vibrant software element to their strategy. But I don't think he knew what he was getting into working, you know, running a software company. It's a lot different game. And that's the thing that surprised me. So anyway, I think he, he, I think he bought this thing and is treating it like a toy, honestly. And I think that I think uh, I think the greatest um, contribution he can make is he better hire a CEO who knows what he's doing right away. Well, to your point, absolutely. So why does oh. you know SpaceX run so smoothly? Because he hired people from orbital science, engineers, actual rocket scientists to run that company and do what they do best. And he stayed out of it. That's not that's not a thing that he's involved in. SpaceX has got a really effective COO. Tesla doesn't have right. a COO. Right, and so all those, all, those, right now. all those people know what they're doing. When has Tesla really done well in terms of sales? When Elon Musk was involved with the company anymore, really. So that's when that you know that's when the company really took off and has done very well. So you're absolutely right, and I, I think you're absolutely right. He doesn't know anything about social media. It's not you know a thing for Elon Musk. So, so this is this is kind of kind of fun watching founder. Although I feel very sorry for the people to work for the company obviously you know that's not a good thing well just to wrap this up i mean for guys like us this is the the entertainment value is endless it will probably last well into 2023 and i have a feeling that we'll be talking about this again in the, the not too distant future i know it's gonna you know the 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 the, the entertainment value will continue let us uh, talk about the next topic here this is a topic um Stuart, that you wanted to bring up, and I think it's an important one. Google had this massive, massive um, uh, privacy settlement um, announcement of $392 billion. Not a million dollars. Am I correct? Million. It's a billion. Million. It million or billion? It's million. It's million. Sorry, it's million. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was billions, but still the point <laughs> is still important. $392 million is still a big number. So let's talk a little bit about that, the significance and uh, – what caught your eye about this topic, uh, Stuart? Well, I'm sort of thing. It's what these companies can and do and will do when to collect data. This is what these companies are in business for. They're none of the business that you that are, are facing the consumers. These companies are collecting and monetizing our data. This is what these companies are and what google apparently had been doing is that they were telling people clicked off don't follow me when they turned off location services that they were still collecting methodology like i said up until may 2018 they were still collecting location they logged out of their application so they had already lost an 85 million dollar there are this suit covered four 
property states, and there are still Texas, uh, the District of Columbia, and a few others who are still suing me because unlike Europe, the United States does not have a blanket set of federal law and piracy. So even if California says we're going to have these rules, like in the um, Texas or California says this is what we want our textbooks to look like, or emission standards, almost everybody markets, that doesn't work here. Um, you know, because you, you can swear, do all sorts of things and avoid whatever a single state wants to do. So, and mark my words, they will, they, I'm not saying this is a drop in the bucket. It's, it's a big number to bet. 392 million, you know, is, is I wouldn't say it's a decimal point, but not as significant as it, as it, we think it is when spread out over 40 states and the that we're, we're talking about, and of course, all those users have to make claims, and they, and so a lot of ninety-two million is just going to go to more lawyers anyway. Um, the only positive outcome that I can see of this is to to do something, and we all know whether how how effective Congress technology issues. Um, so I don't know that there is any kind of answer, any jurisdiction that can rein in any of these companies from desperately want to do, which is keep our eyes glued and collect as much data about monetize that data to the fullest extent allowable until they get caught. Right. Uh, Rob, your thoughts? So, yeah, it's been interesting to follow this. It started when the Associated Press did this check and found that you disabled location history, but you hadn't looked in a separate category called web and app activity. Notice the word location doesn't appear in that. The location can still be tracked. So Google says there's an addition of 3 to 92 million, which I agree is less than a drop on the bucket since their last quarterly earnings. I forget what they said, 20 or $23 billion in cash and cash equivalents on hand on the balance sheet. Um, so they're going to revise the set of UI user experience to make it a little more clear what data gets collected. Uh, they said they've already done changes. For instance, now by default, your location history gets erased after 18 months. Um, they actually got this out of when I checked them for a search for PC Mac. If you do web searches, your location is only estimated down to about a square mile. So it's a little data minimization. Uh, the other thing I would add, since I mentioned this just 10 minutes ago, don't forget, the wireless carriers also collect cell site location data. Unlike Google, they do not let you view it, edit it, or delete it. John? Yeah, one thing to point out to people, too, is they're not going to stop doing this. This deal wasn't, oh, you did something bad, now stop doing it. Oh, they're going to continue to do this. I should also point out, they do a lot more than this. As part of the user agreement, they can record you at any time. So this conversation we're having now, any conversation you have at home with your phone anywhere near you in your home is being recorded. And you can see the evidence of this often, even though both Amazon and Google have denied to me that they do that. But they do. They clearly do record it. So, you know, it's... It's really strange for them to get this fine and then say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to have a couple of pop-ups. That's what we're going to do. That's their solution. It's like, 
but we're still going to track you every single thing that you do. Right. Well, and to, and to Stuart's point, you know, 392 million, while it's a big number, it's not a number that's going to force um, Google to consider bankruptcy. Not that, and, and my point is, is that they, they may have made a calculation within the company saying, hey, you know what, if we have to pay $400 million every few years to, to, to make people go away, we're still making so much money in the back end. That's a, um, we'll call it, that's a sunk cost that we have to build into our, uh, into our business model. You know? Right, and, they, and that's what their lawyers do, just like the automakers. Look, they they say, look, we can make, make so many mistakes in a factory and have this many car accidents. That's what we can afford, and we can't afford anything more than that. And this is the same kind of calculus as the cost of doing business. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, Rob pointed out what the numbers really are. You really got to cut into that ad base to make any kind of impact or change in their behavior. And right. Stuart's also right. There's no national. There's no national privacy law that we've been working on for 10 years so there's nothing to really enforce this company yeah and, and keep in mind and keep the in mind amount of, the Go amount ahead, of money that they were fined and the, the considering up in the bucket that it is gives you an indication of one just how it is and two that how, how valuable that data is means that they are not Right. right. Well, and, and keep in mind, and you know, the, you notice the one company we haven't talked about in this discussion is Apple. You know, Apple has adopted very aggressive privacy uh, privacy um, requirements, and as a result, we, we've seen that have a consequence for both Meta and Google in terms of the impact on their on, on not Apple's advertising revenue, but Google's advertising revenue and Facebook's advertising revenue. So, it may be, hey, we got to kind of. You know, we got to kind of step over the line a little bit because it allows us to keep our our advertising and tracking capability at a level where it's still relatively lucrative. And then, hey, if we got to spend four hundred million dollars every right. four or five years, so be it. You know, so that now I, I think we'll revisit this topic again because we're going to hear about this over and over again. Let us talk about the last uh, topic I want to tee up here because hopefully we're all, all going to see each other. A sixty-four thousand dollar question, not the three hundred ninety-two million dollar question, but the sixty-four thousand dollar question. Uh, will CES be back to its former glory in January? What I mean by that, uh, let me take this off off screen, is that you know, CES did happen last year, early in the year, back in January, but it was it was a shell of its former sh uh, self. I think only twenty-five thousand people showed up. You could get a yeah, whatever. It was a small number. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't at the hundred fifty thousand level. It was easy. It was great. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, you liked it because well, did you go? I can't remember. Were you there? You, yeah, I, yes. I, I was. There. That's how, that's how uh, well well uh, attended it was. I didn't even know. I forget where you were there. I, oh yeah, we did. We I, I, I think we did see each other. But regardless, yes. If you had to handicap this, Rob, do you think it'll be what you're hearing? Do you think this will be back to its former glory, attendance wise, uh, this year, next early next year? I'm not saying I'm afraid. I mean, maybe it won't be 180,000. But, you know, I, I don't see it being any less than, say, 120,000, which would make it larger than almost every other gathering in the U.S. You know, there, there right. may be some companies, we were discussing this at breakfast today, a couple of analyst friends, and they were saying some companies will not be there. They would expect to be there. But on the other hand, CES itself has changed. It is less of a tech show. It doubles as a car show these days. Uh, you know, last year, the last year, it's been so long. January. That it was a substantial aerospace track, 
which was not there before. Uh, you know, now one of the biggest public exhibitors is John Deere because tractors are so high tech. So there will be some companies you expect to see will be there. There will be other companies you were surprised to see being there. Um, certainly, the air ferry pace, the CDS is in fact back. Right. Uh, so, John, what are your thoughts? Are you are you, uh, are you well, optimistic? I'm I'm optimistic. I mean, uh, Stuart and I attended the preview uh, CES unveiled uh, last night. We saw each other briefly there at the 101st floor out in Hudson Yards. I didn't take any pictures, but a lot of my colleagues did. You'll see <laughs> stuff online. But so I do think it's back, um, and I I think uh, it'll be interesting to see all. Although they're soft pedaling, it's certainly what Rob just alluded to with the airfares. The airfares are about 30% what they were normally for CES at this time of year, but lower. You know? So there are all these other airfares are going crazy. They're charging astronomical amounts of money to fly regular places. Not to Las Vegas for CES, though. So they're kind of being a little... Yeah, I mean, they're hesitant. I wish I wish that airfare phenomenon was impacting my 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 Thanksgiving trip from uh, the West Coast to uh, to South Carolina, which is costing me nine hundred dollars oh. to fly. On, I mean, it's crazy. I That's mean, not bad. I, I'm I'm absolutely well. I'm absolutely convinced that with the Las Vegas uh, and, and probably Rob could probably comment on this. I think that the airlines get some type of subsidy when you're flying to Las Vegas because even now you can fly if you have a couple of week notice. I can fly from San Jose to uh, Las Vegas probably five or six times a day for less than a hundred dollars each way. You know, and not, but God forbid I should want to see my mom in uh, Bluffton, South Carolina. That's costing me a grand. I, that drives me crazy. Right. Stuart, no, it's been expensive. Stuart, your thoughts, is it back or is it not back? Well, I, it, it, it older back back in, in 2020, which is the last pre pandemic show. They had about 4,455,000 people. And from what CTA told us last night, and they're usually pretty, they have 2,200 exhibitors signed up right now. And there'll sure to be another couple I'll sign up in December. And they are already got more than 100,000, which that will go up also. So you got to figure out about 100, 10, 120,000 attendees. But certainly it measures to what was going on in the mid 90s when when we when I was number one number two what the Gary Shapiro CEO last night that most of the missing most of the the missing exhibitors are the and all of us who have gone to CES certainly remember they would build these tents or they would be and there would be these rows and rows and rows of these unknown Chinese OE they won't be there, so that I don't. That's mostly what they will they said that they're not missing anybody major. That they've actually added a couple of majors. Nothing here, uh, but West Hall, which is the new building that they built, built in what used to be the parking lots there. Exhibitors, and it's almost all vehicle related. Not only automotive and and sea transportation. And it is apparently, according to Gary, sold out. Um, again, he they talked about is 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 um, <clears throat> that uh, it, or as Rob mentioned, that it's the new auto show, and that's what 
they talked about last presents the biggest auto display in the country. Um, from a it's not open to consumers as the Detroit Auto Show is. Um, and so whether how and it's back, back, it's coming back. I don't think it's as coming back as strong as a CDA did. Much closer to its pre-pandemic attendance levels than CES will be, but I. I think only because CEDIA is almost all a domestic audience, where CES is an international international side, and especially right. the Chinese side that you will see where coming in terms of exhibitors and visitors. Yeah, so the, the, just a final comment I'll make on this, because I think you said something was kind of interesting. You know, even though it may be back, you know, forget about the overall attendance, but from, hey, the attendees that were there before, the, the, the big guys that always show up, their presence there may be a bit scaled back, because as we know, you know, we're going into the, the, the country probably will be going into a recession next year. Um, you've had companies now for the last three years you know, pocket the extra money that they haven't had to spend on CES, which goes right to the bottom line. I mean, as you know, putting these humongous exhibits that we all know CES for, those cost five, 10, $15 million. That's real serious money to uh, even big companies from, a, from an expense standpoint. So even though they may be back, what will be interesting to watch, and we'll of course see it when we're there, is, you know, maybe in 2019, they had those exhibits that could be like a, a city block, but have they been scaled back 50%, you know, which that could dramatically, um, you know, lower their cost footprint. So they could say, Hey, we were there, but you know what? We didn't need a, a, a 4,000 foot um, trailer and et cetera, et cetera. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. But guys, thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast for our viewing and listening audience. Thanks for making the smart tech check podcast part of your day or commute. And please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Mark Vita Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks, guys. Gobble, gobble. Hello.